I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. So, as the end of 2018 draws near, I thought I'd give you my list of my top 10 favourite and least favourite films of 2018. Now, just a few sort of ground rules. Firstly, my list is based entirely on movies released in the UK in 2018. So, if you're listening to this podcast outside of the UK, you may think, well, some of those movies are from 2017. This is all to do with their UK release dates. The other thing is, lists are inherently foolish. And even as I give you my list, I understand that these lists are flexible and changeable. So, these are basically the lists as I see them right now. They're entirely personal, and you will have your own choices, I'm sure. So, If you've listened to the list, you like them, you agree with them, you don't agree with them, whatever, get in touch. And the best way to get in touch is on Twitter. It's at KermodeMovie and mark your message, hashtag KermodeOnFilm. So in the next KermodeOnFilm podcast, we're going to do the top 10 worst films released in the UK in 2018. But for this podcast, here's numbers 10 to number one of my favourite films released here this year. I was 16 years old and my father allowed me to go I was just turned 17 at the time. I was 16. I was 15 years. So we start at number 10, and at number 10, it's a documentary. Or is it, in fact, a work of art? They shall not grow old. Peter Jackson took 21st century technology and did something rather wonderful to 100-year-old footage from the Great War. The project was commissioned by the Imperial War Museum and by 1418 Now. And what Peter Jackson wanted to do was something new and different with the archive that was owned by the Imperial War Museum. So he took movie footage, some of which you will be familiar with, it's old grainy black and white footage, and he used 21st century technology to make it look like it was fresh and new, as if it had just been shot yesterday. There is an extraordinary sequence, 15 minutes into the movie, when we see jumpy, grainy old black and white footage suddenly turn into colour before our very eyes and the faces of the soldiers in the trenches suddenly seem as close as the faces of people you would pass in the street. The most remarkable challenge was getting the footage to move at the right speed because old silent movie footage could move at anything between 12 and 20 frames a second. And what Peter Jackson and his team of computer graphic whiz kids did was to make sure that the footage was moving at exactly the right speed by creating new frames to put in between the old frames and then digitally colourising the image. And on top of that, they got lip readers to lip read what was being said in the silent footage and then got people to dub those voices. So suddenly, this old, grainy, silent black and white footage springs to life in full colour at the correct speed 
and with the voices of people that you think you shouldn't be able to hear because you know it's silent movie footage. All right, boys, here it comes. We're in the pictures. <laughs> the first time I saw the film, I, I was really knocked out by it. I thought what was brilliant was that it was something that was a technological endeavour, and yet somehow it put the humanity back into that footage. I had the great privilege of interviewing Peter Jackson on stage when they did the premiere of They Shall Not Grow Old, and he talked passionately about his interest in World War I, but also about how the technology had driven the project, how he looked at the possible technology and wondered, what can we do with this footage? I think he's managed to do something genuinely profound in this, the centenary of the armistice. I think he's really, really brought that footage into the present. It's like being brought face to face with the past. It's a strangely humanising project that is based entirely upon computer graphics and technology. I think it's wonderful. At number 10, they shall not grow old. There was a job to be done, and you just got on and did it. There's never been a black cop in this city. We think you might be the man to open things up around here. So, on to number nine, and at nine, Black Klansman. For my money, Spike Lee's best film since his Oscar-nominated documentary, Four Little Girls. It's the true story of an African-American cop infiltrating the Ku Klux Klan in the early 1970s. Interestingly, it's produced by the team behind Get Out. Apparently, Jordan Peele first brought this true story to Spike Lee, and it has exactly that same mix of humour and horror that made Get Out such a remarkable film. John David Washington stars as Ron Stallworth, the cop who manages to infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan in the film. He does so with the aid of his Jewish colleague, played by Adam Driver. The KKK is planning an attack. How do you propose to make this investigation? We'll establish contact over the phone. We'll need a white officer to play me when they meet face to face. You for the white race, Ron? Oh, hell yeah. So there becomes a combined Ron Stallworth. Can you do that? With the right white man, we can do anything. I remember hearing about the film when it first played at Cannes and people struggling to explain the tone of it. They said, well, yes, it's a true story, but it's also very funny. It's also very dark. It's very, very contemporary, despite the fact that it has a historical setting. And I couldn't quite imagine what the film was going to be like. Having seen it, I find it equally difficult to explain what it's like, other than to say that it finds Spike Lee right back on form. It reminds you what a brilliantly exciting director he is when he's working with a project which really fires his imagination. It has a fantastic central performance by John David Washington and perhaps most brilliantly, the film itself feels like it was made in the 1970s. It has the texture, it has the grit of a 1970s film. Now, when the film came out, I did a couple of onstage interviews with Spike Lee and with John David Washington, both of whom were very eloquent and spoke enthusiastically about the film, which has gone down very well with audiences and critics alike. Funnily enough, one of my memories of those interviews was finding myself on stage with those two guys, one of whom was wearing a fantastic pair of Adidas trainers, the other of whom was wearing an equally fantastic pair of Prince baseball boots, limited edition, very, very special. And I looked down to realise that I was interviewing them both whilst wearing a pair of Minion socks. To their great credit, neither of them said anything about it. Black Klansman is at number nine. Black power! Black power! Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. That's us. Stallworth Brothers. We're on a roll, baby. Hello? 
Now, at number eight, a film you may not have seen because it didn't get a particularly wide theatrical release in the UK, although it was very much liked by critics. Jeune Femme, the debut feature from Leonor Sarai, who won the Camera Door Prize at the Cannes Film Festival in 2017. Letitia Dosh stars as 31-year-old Paula, who we first meet splitting her head open on a closed door and who then spends the rest of the movie pinballing around Paris in search of her identity. The film was described by its writer-director as a metamorphosis from a girl into a woman and from an object to that of a subject. What I liked about the movie was this. It introduced you to a character who was a little bit out of control, a little bit annoying at times, but was always sympathetic. It's a very unvarnished character study. It's a portrait of somebody whose life is in crisis, whose identity seems to be falling apart, and it manages to be both funny and tragic at the same time. And crucially, you care about the protagonist, even when the protagonist is doing stuff that makes you wince. I really enjoyed the film, which I saw with almost no expectation. One of the best things about being a weekly film critic is that you just get to see everything that comes out. And often, you know nothing more than the title of a film and the location that it's playing and the time of its starting. I went in to see Jeune Femme, as I said, with no expectations. I came out thinking that is one of my favourite films of the year. It's a really, really remarkably engaging piece of work. As I said, not such a wide theatrical release. And if you didn't catch it in cinemas, then do catch it on DVD. It's a real treat. If I told you about her, the princess without voice, what would I say? So, on to number seven in my top ten films released in the UK in 2018. And at number seven, Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. Now, If you're a regular listener, you'll know that I am a complete Guillermo del Toro fanboy. I first fell in love with his movies when Kronos came out many, many years ago. I really, really loved The Devil's Backbone, and I was a huge fan of Pan's Labyrinth. I remember seeing Pan's Labyrinth when it first came out and being reduced to tears, sitting in the auditorium after the film had finished with me and some fellow critics. I think it was Kim Newman and Alan Jones, and everybody was just in silence about what a terrific movie it was. So moving, so profound, at once beautiful and also very, very dark. Guillermo del Toro's career pretty much came of age with The Shape of Water, which won four Oscars, including the Academy Award for Best Film and for Best Director. And it's easy to see why. The best way of describing it is that it's Splash meets Creature from the Black Lagoon, which perhaps doesn't sound like the most promising of prospects. But this is a wonderful magical fantasy which takes elements of the musical, of the rom-com, of the creature feature, of the horror movie, and puts them all together into something really special. When he looks at me, he doesn't know how I am incomplete. He sees me as I am. I've seen Shape of Water four times, and every time I see it, I see something new and different. There are terrific performances by Sally Hawkins, by Richard Jenkins, by Octavia Spencer, and, of course, by Michael Shannon. And right at the centre of it all is the creature, played by Doug Jones, who's been breathing life into del Toro's beautiful monsters for decades. Now, I know it's become slightly fashionable to say, ah, well, Shape of Water isn't perhaps Guillermo del Toro's best film, and it's not. I think his finest film is Pan's Labyrinth. But I also think that among fancy fans there is a certain sniffiness because the film became so popular. 
I used to have this belief that anything that won an Oscar was inherently devalued because I thought the Oscars themselves were so ridiculous and so silly. I did believe for ages and ages that you could always get a better list of movies from films that weren't even nominated for Oscars than those that won. But every now and then the Oscars get it right. And I think in the case of Shape of Water, they absolutely did. For me, it really was one of the best films of the year. And it was fabulous to see a fantasy film which had elements of horror and science fiction recognised for what it was. I think Guillermo del Toro is an extraordinary filmmaker. I once said that he was the modern-day Orson Welles, by which I meant that he covers all the aspects of filmmaking. He's somebody who, right from the very beginning, the idea of the movie, he's across everything. He writes, he draws, he directs, he designs, he envisages the movie in his head. And when you watch something like Shape of Water, you think, I am literally watching Guillermo del Toro's imagination, and what a wonderful imagination it is. If I told you about her, what would I say? I wonder. Which brings us to number six and A Fantastic Woman. Now, A Fantastic Woman won the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film in March of 2018. And just to reiterate once again that my list is based on films released in the UK in 2018. So as I said before, there'll be some films that some people will think, well, that's a film from last year, but I'm working entirely on the UK's release schedule. So A Fantastic Woman is directed by Sebastian Lelio and stars Daniela Vega, who is extraordinary as Marina Vidal, a waitress and an aspiring singer who we first meet performing a popular song. She is deeply in love with an older man who, early on in the film, suffers a heart attack. And the rest of the film is about how her life then plays out in the absence of her lover, because she is a transgender woman and she is not accepted by the family of the man with whom she has been living. It's an extraordinary movie for a number of reasons. On a performance level, it's completely convincing. You believe in these characters, you get to know these characters, you know their quirks and their foibles. Also, it's a film which is dealing with equality, it's dealing with intolerance, and it's dealing with people's right to define themselves. But what makes the movie really special is that it also has a magical element to it. There are times when the filmmaking goes off into flights of fancy. There's one scene when Marina is walking down a street and the whole thing becomes a really sort of surreal, almost like Wizard of Oz sequence with this very, very strong wind. There's another sequence when she's dancing and she appears to fly upward toward the camera. And what the film does by taking those magical elements and basing them in something which has a very, very strong social realist underpinning is that it makes a movie that works on a number of different levels. You can read it as a political story, you can read it as a personal story, but it's always an emotional story. Once again, as I said before, I used to be very, very down on the Oscars, but again, I think the Oscars got it right with this. I do think A Fantastic Woman was a deserving prize winner, not least because of that fantastic central performance by Daniela Vega. My name is Marina Vidal. Tiene algún problema con eso? Hold up. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So we're at the halfway point. Just to recap, my top 10 movies released in the UK in 2018. At number 10, They Shall Not Grow Old. At number 9, Spike Lee's Black Klansman. At number 8, Jeune Femme. At number seven, The Shape of Water, which won the Oscar for Best Picture. And at number six, A Fantastic Woman, which won the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Picture. So now we're into the top five. And at number five, a film which some people may have seen when it first played in the Cannes Film Festival in 2017, where it won a Best Actor Award for Joaquin Phoenix and a Best Screenplay Award for Lynn Ramsey. You were never really here. State Senator Albert Vato. His teenage daughter's missing. What's the lead? He got an anonymous text with an address. I've heard of these places. They said you were brutal. I can be. I want you to hurt them. Now, weirdly enough, this is only Lynn Ramsey's fourth feature. She's someone who makes films very infrequently, but they are always worth waiting for. Her first feature was Ratcatcher, which is a wonderfully poetic vision of childhood and coming of age. Her second film is Morvan Caller, which for my money is the great underrated Lynn Ramsey movie. A really, really brilliant adaptation of an apparently unfilmable book with a dynamite central performance by Samantha Morton. Then, of course, there was We Need to Talk About Kevin from Lionel Shriver's novel, which once again took very difficult subject matter and somehow turned it into screen gold. You Were Never Really Here is kind of an anti-thriller. At the centre of it is a character played by Joaquin Phoenix, who is a sort of enforcer come hitman, who is sent off on a job to find a missing girl. That's nominally what the plot is about, but actually what it's about is about the inside of that character's head and the bag of nails that he's carrying around with him in his psyche because of damage that he suffered going right back to his childhood experiences. Get up, can you hear me? My name's Joe. It's okay, come here. Close your eyes. Where are you going? Taking with your dad. As with all of Lynn Ramsey's films, You Were Never Really Here is visually poetic. It has an extraordinary soundtrack and the performances are all utterly committed. It's clear that when people work with Lynn Ramsey, they do their very best work. As I said, in nearly 20 years, Lynn Ramsey has only made four features. But the reason she takes such a long time is that she doesn't make any compromises. She doesn't take any prisoners. She works on films that she wants to work on and in which she believes totally. And you look at something like You Were Never Really Here and you realise why it is that she's such an extraordinary filmmaker. It's because she never does anything at half measure. You can see three or four seconds from a Lynn Ramsey film and you know immediately that you're watching something extraordinary and something extraordinary by Lynn Ramsey. For me, she's one of the most unique filmmakers currently working in cinema. 
and you were never really here is proof of her status. It's okay, Joe. It's okay. So on to number four, and it's another Cannes Award winner, Pavel Pavlikovsky's Cold War, for which he won the Best Director Award at Cannes in May. The story, which is stretched over 15 years and moves from Poland to Berlin to Yugoslavia to France, was inspired by Pavlikovsky's own parents, although he says the story is completely fictional, but inspired by their characters. The film stars Joanna Kulig and Thomas Cott as star-crossed lovers, and weirdly enough, this swooning Polish-British-French co-production put me unexpectedly in mind of movies like Casablanca or La La Land. It's shot in Academy ratio in black and white, and I know that sounds to some people like it's off-putting, but believe me, you will be completely sucked into the world of this film. Incidentally, Thomas Cott was Danny Boyle's choice to play the villain in the Bond movie which Danny Boyle was meant to be directing. He thought he was the perfect choice, but apparently the producers disagreed, and that may have been one of the reasons why Danny Boyle walked away from the Bond movie. Well, on the evidence of Cold War, he was right. Cott is absolutely terrific, as indeed is Joanna Kulig. I love this movie. I found it really touching, really engaging, really heartfelt, frequently tough, but at its heart, a movie that came from an affectionate place of love. It's no surprise that it's appeared in so many people's list of the top 10 movies of 2018. You have no idea, do you? Or did you choose not to know? Your husband stole $2 million from me. So into the top three now. And at number three, something which began life as a television series in the 1980s and has now been reimagined for the big screen, Steve McQueen's Widows. Steve McQueen remembers very clearly seeing the Linda LaPlante scripted TV series Widows on the television when he was a kid. He said that he was sitting there watching the telly and for the first time he suddenly saw characters on the screen, heroes and heroines on the screen, with whom he felt that he could identify. Sometime later, he happened to be at Buckingham Palace where he bumped into Linda LaPlante and he said, I absolutely love Widows, I'd like to make it into a feature film. And he did, and what a terrific feature it is. It has a great ensemble cast headed up by Viola Davis, who for my money gives one of the most striking performances of the year. It's a story about a group of widows who, after losing their husbands, decide to pull off the raid that their husbands were planning. As with all Steve McQueen movies, this is a film that absolutely has its feet on the ground, but it also has its head in the air. Steve McQueen is a great visual stylist. He's somebody who knows how to make very, very cinematic films. It's also telling a story of political corruption, of urban decay, of racial tension, of gender imbalance. It's doing all these things at the same time whilst convincing you that actually what you're watching is a fast, pacey, involving heist thriller. As I said, it has an extraordinary ensemble cast, which includes people like Colin Farrell doing their very, very best work. But it's absolutely a Steve McQueen movie. Now, some people have complained that they prefer the TV series. Some people have said, well, it's a complicated story. It works better when strung out of a long period. And I really like the TV series. I mean, I remember it. It had a profound effect. I really, really remember enjoying it. But the film is something else. The film is its own beast. The film is absolutely a piece of cinema, first and foremost. And I think it's extraordinary that they've managed to take something from that source and turn it into such a perfectly formed film. I absolutely love Widows. Now the best thing we have going for us is being who we are. 
Why? Because no one thinks we have the balls to pull this off. So into the top two now, and at two, an animation. The runaway animated success of this year was Incredibles 2, which I have to say, for my money, was actually better than the first Incredibles. But my choice at number two is The Breadwinner, the animated feature by Nora Toomey, adapted from Deborah Ellis's much-loved bestseller. If there are women present, cover yourselves now! That's the man. He's got forbidden books. Where is he being taken? To prison. The film is an international co-production and it's made by Cartoon Saloon, the team behind The Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea. It's set in Taliban or Afghanistan where a young girl has to disguise herself as a boy after her father is taken away by the Taliban. Running alongside that story are the tales of her country and her history which were told to her by her father and which are represented with a very different form of animation, with cut-out animation, which blends the fantastical and the magical with the down-to-earth story of our heroine. One of the things that I think Nora Toomey manages to do brilliantly is to take very difficult subject matter. I mean, this includes people being taken away, being imprisoned, being beaten up, and yet somehow make it palatable. And I interviewed Nora Toomey about the film, which I absolutely loved, and I asked her how she'd managed to do that balance. She said the key is that you see the story through the eyes of this young girl. And because you believe in that young girl's strength, because you believe in her fortitude, because you believe in her spirit... You're never as terrified by the events as you might be otherwise. Nora Toomey deliberately designed the film so that it would be acceptable to a younger audience, but it would also strike home with adults. And I think this is something that animation can do that often live action can't do. I've said many times that I think we're living through a golden age of animation in which all these different animation styles sit alongside each other. At one point, everyone was saying that everything was going to be digital animation from now on. It was all going to be 3D CG. But now we have hand-drawn, now we have stop-motion, Early Man came out this year, now we have cut-out, now we have all these different strands of animation all happily coexisting. I think The Breadwinner is a real work of art, it's a film made with real passion, you can feel the personal touch in it, and clearly it was a passion project for all the makers. But again, I think the most remarkable thing is it demonstrates just how universal animation can be. You can tell a story in animation that you could not tell in live action, or at least that you couldn't tell in a way that was so universal. If you haven't seen The Breadwinner yet, then absolutely do seek it out. It was my second favourite film of 2018. Maybe if we think of it like a story, huh? Is it a happy story or a sad story? Just wait and see. So, just to recap that countdown so far of my favourite films of 2018, at number 10, They Shall Not Grow Old, at number 9, Black Klansman, at number 8, Jeune Femme, number 7, The Shape of Water, number 6, A Fantastic Woman, number 5, You Were Never Really Here, number 4, Cold War, number 3, Widows, and number 2, The Breadwinner, which means at number 1, my favourite film of 2018 is Deborah Granick's Leave No Trace. Adapted from Peter Rock's novel My Abandonment, Leave No Trace is a story of a father and daughter living off-grid in the forests of the Pacific Northwest. The story follows the life that they have carved out for themselves away from society and what happens when that life is brought to an end when they are discovered by the authorities. 
It's directed by Deborah Granick, who first made a name for herself with Winter's Bone, the movie, of course, which introduced Jennifer Lawrence to the world and has two brilliant central performances. Ben Foster, who plays the reclusive veteran Will, and Thomasin Harcourt McKenzie as his teenage daughter, Tom. Who taught you how to read? My dad teaches me. You're actually quite a bit ahead of where you need to be. I wake up rested and peaceful most morning. True. My day-to-day life is full of things that keep me interested. True. I have nightmares or troubling dreams. Was your dad in the service? He was. Do you feel safe living with your dad? We didn't need to be rescued. Your dad needs to provide you shelter and a place to live. He did. Now, one of the things that a critic should be able to do is to explain to you why it is that they love a film. The difficulty is that when you really love a film, you usually reduce to saying, well, I just love it. See for yourself. You'll see what I mean. However, in the case of Leave No Trace, there's a fairly straightforward answer as to why I think it's the best film of the year. I tend to have a rule with cinema, which is that what I like a film to do is show, don't tell. I've often complained about movies in which people stand around and explain the plot to each other, in which a character says, I'm sorry, I don't understand, could you just explain this to me? Or in which somebody says, oh, I'm glad you've arrived, because I just need to get you up to speed with everything that's happened so far. The thing with cinema is, it's a visual medium, and for me, great filmmaking tells the story through that cinematic medium. Leave No Trace is the best example of show, don't tell that I've seen this year, and I have to say, of any recent year. The dialogue is extremely sparse. The interaction between the father and the daughter is really expressed through gesture, through looks. There are whole sections of the film in which almost no words are spoken at all, and yet the film itself speaks volumes. It's not just that it's directed sympathetically, with great empathy for the characters and a brilliant sense of setting. It's that those characters tell you their story without standing there and telling you their story. There was a moment towards the end of the film when I started to worry that we were building towards some kind of emotional climax which would involve an explanation of everything that had gone on before and it's to the film's great credit that it never fell into that trap. The last few minutes of this film I found utterly devastating and I stumbled out into the street afterwards almost unable to speak. I think it is a near-perfect film. I think Deborah Granick has done a wonderful job. And what I really love about it is that it's a film which is a film. It's not a stage play. It's not an audio play. It's a film which takes full advantage of cinema and tells its story cinematically. For me, it's the best film of 2018. Where are you guys headed? I don't think we knew where we were going. So there we are, my top 10 films of the year, at least as I see them at the moment. Now, already I'm looking back on that list and noticing the omissions. Where, for example, is Phantom Thread, the Paul Thomas Anderson movie, which I've seen five times and absolutely loved every time? Where's Leck and the Dogs, the brilliant movie by Andrew Cotting, which was one of the most strange and unexpected films I saw this year? What about First Man, which I thought was a brilliant study of grief? Or Old Parker's delightfully daft Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again? These are all films which I loved and which I would have loved to have been able to get into my top ten list. But the fact is, lists are inherently foolish and in the end you have to just simply cut and run. So, what have I left out that you loved? What would your top ten list be? What was your favourite film of 2018? 
get in touch with me the easiest way is on twitter at kermode movie and mark your message hashtag kermode on film thanks for listening on the next kermode on film podcast my 10 worst films of 2018 great grandmother i'm leaving that out of the bio a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.